this is a poll that went out to creators. Their preferred way to work with brands is they like to be given boundaries and, and sort of high level direction, but then they want the freedom to create. And so when brands are, are, are working with creators, that's what we suggest. That's what we recommend. Give them boundaries, set campaign objectives and goals, and then let the creator do their thing. That's what they're, that's what they're great at. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. You may have never heard of it, but you've definitely contributed and participated in a new type of economy that's really entering an inflection point right now. If you've ever watched a YouTube video, listened to a podcast, or ever been on Instagram, you have been an active participant in the creator economy. It's real, it's lucrative, and it's getting bigger every single day. But with the scale also comes inefficiencies. And it's in those inefficiencies where we find opportunity. My guest today is going to help us to understand the nuances of the creator economy, how to leverage its strengths, and where these opportunities are. He's the VP of Marketing and Sales Enablement. He's the VP of Marketing and Sales Development at Hashtag Paid and the host of D2C Growth Show. Joining me today is Roger Figueredo. Hey, I appreciate you coming on, Roger. Hey, great to be here, Stuart. Thanks for having me. To start things off, I'm going to kind of throw you a curveball here. I've heard that you originally got into marketing by being in a band. What yeah. instrument did you play and what genre was that band? All right. It was uh, pop rock and I was the uh, singer and guitar player. <laughs> and so you, you, you were a member of the band, but what pulled you towards the marketing side of it? Yeah. We were with a record label and, and one of the criteria to get our record in, in stores was to, we had to have a, a full tour booked and we didn't have anyone to do that for us. Our, our record company wasn't helping us. And so my favorite part was actually doing the outbound cold outreach to bars and venues and people to, to book this, you know, tour. And <clears throat> so the messaging, the communication, the marketing, I learned was my favorite part of being in a band. That's a pretty, that's, that's, that's awesome because a lot of creators or creatives, like if you chose, if you choose to go so hard at being an, a musician, a lot of people love the creating part of it and they forget about the promotion side of things, or you can only be good at one thing. And there's some people who are good at both, which we'll get into here shortly that, that there are people making full businesses around their creative pursuits. It's just funny that that's kind of the way it goes is you either like one or you hate the other. Yeah, I, I did. In fact, when we were on tour, I was actually studying part-time at, uh, in, in university. I was taking business. So I, I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the, the, the business component of, of, of music. And yeah, and then I slowly creeped into, into marketing. Yeah, 100%. There's another episode I've recorded on the show with Cormac McGee, and he uh, does kind of the whole kit and caboodle with musicians as they help them market it and help them record and do all this stuff. And I didn't know that there's Spotify brokers. Like that's the, that's the place right now is to get on playlists and they'll oh, yeah. help you broker getting on a playlist when you have a single crazy wild. Yeah. It's wild. 
So you're now the VP of marketing at Hashtag Paid, which is a creator marketing platform. Uh, And we're going to use influencer and creator somewhat synonymously, but I think you've got a little beef with the word create with the beef with influencer as a term. Do you? We do. We do. And, and it's, we tease out sort of the, the the terms and, and we do play a little bit here on semantics. Let me explain a little bit why we do that from talking to marketers. There seems to be this, a lot of desire to do influencer marketing. A lot of people want to do it. In fact, I, I, would, I would say most marketers are either thinking about it or doing it. But one of the beefs that they have uh, that keeps coming up is, well, I worked with this influencer and, I, and, and you know, they tripled their rates and I worked with this influencer and they were, you know, garbage. And, and so it seemed to be that the problem people had with influencer marketing was these bad experiences with influencers and everybody was calling themselves an influencer, an influencer. And so what we did was we took sort of the best influencers, the people with real audiences, real engagement, trust, um, consistency, uh, really creative. And what we did was we started calling them creators. This happened a long time ago, four or five years ago. And we started calling them creators to separate them from the pack. It's just a term that we use to identify the best influencers in the world. We call them creators. And and. As, as a company, sort of, we pride ourselves on having, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten comments where people say, well, you have such a small network. You only have, you know, 20 or 30 or a thousand creators in your network, but they're highly, highly qualified and vetted. They're only creators. We don't sift through influencers. And so we've adopted that as a philosophy at, at hashtag paid. Gotcha. So the, the difference, if I can repeat it, is that a creator is seeing their work as a business and are in it for the long term and want and and have built that credibility the same way a business needs to and now they're looking for partnerships whereas an influencer might be someone who's just really good looking really funny able to put <laughs> mash together memes and developed an audience but might be in it for the wrong reasons and so that's what hashtag pay does is, is vet them to make sure that they're legit yeah, and I would say that's sort of the best case scenario for an influencer where they're, they're just in it for the wrong reasons. It, it gets actually much worse because some have taken to purchasing likes and comments and buying followers. So these black hat tactics that fool brands, that increase the premiums that these influencers can charge brands. So all of a sudden, you know, this person actually has probably like 5,000 legitimate followers, but they've purchased 40,000 or something ridiculous. And they're now charging 5X or 4X their actual rate and what they're actually going to sort of bring in terms of engagement and real metrics and movement, business metrics movement. And, you know, brands get, brands get, it, there's, it's fraud. And so worst case scenario, influencers can be fraudulent. Can you give me an example of what a really amazing relationship, maybe a recent example or one that you've kind of seen in the last year or so, a really amazing relationship between a creator and a brand? Yeah. I, I mean, this is a really obvious one. If A lot of people listening to this will be familiar, but David Dobrik and, and SeatGeek, I think not just because it's a good relationship, but because it started off with, I, I think, the way that a lot of brands maybe start off with influencer marketing. And, and that was with Ian being very prescriptive with David about what he expected and wanted. And the response from David Dobrik was, well, hey, I know what content to create. And so uh, let me just do my thing and it's going to work out. Trust me, people will be talking about SeatGeek um, all over the place. And that's exactly what happened. David Dobrik did this incredible video and it was super emotional, super engaging. 
And so I think that's probably maybe a recent example that people can look to for, for, for guidance. And to add a little context to that for people who aren't familiar, like SeatGeek is just a buying platform where you can buy uh, tickets to sporting events and movies or whatever. Yeah. And then David Dobrik, David Dobrik is just a YouTuber who <laughs> does fun stunts and it's all lighthearted and, and it's always just a big kind of fanfare. And his big thing is he just goes so big. I can't even describe it. Like it, it, that's how cool the creator economy is, is that what's he known for? Oh, he does warm hearted pranks. I don't even know if that's right or not, but those two worlds don't seem to overlap very much, like buying a ticket to a baseball game and giving away cars, but they do overlap in a lot of ways. Totally. Absolutely. And, and that's, and it's the creator's job to figure out what the, what the overlap is and to tell the story in a way that connects with the brand. That's, that's what creators are really good at. You hinted at it, but I think that the brief that the, the brand gives the creator is kind of the really early stage relationship building part to make sure that it goes right. Like you, the creator is a creator for a reason. Can you speak to that creative brief and, and how that relationship starts off? This is probably one of the things that a lot of marketers struggle with when they first start with influencer marketing. And that is that brands, they're overly prescriptive in their direction to creators. And, you know, you have these creators who've built an audience from scratch, from the ground up. They have done it through really good and engaging content. And they've done that consistently. So they've built a brand around their handle, around their name. And people are proactively hitting the, hitting the button and saying, I subscribe to this. I want this. I want to see more of this in my feed. And again, that's a result of really good and really uh, consistent content. And then you have brands who come in and they want to work with these creators, but then they tell them what to say, what the creative should look like. And they give them, they're overly prescriptive in, in their direction to the creator, which sort of sterilizes them and removes sort of all the authenticity in the partnership and in the content. And so when brands are giving creative direction from creators, this is, this is a poll that went out to creators, their preferred way to work with brands is they like to be given boundaries and, and sort of high level direction, but then they want the freedom to create. And so when brands are, are, are working with creators, that's what we suggest. That's what we recommend. Give them boundaries, set campaign objectives and goals, and then let the creator do their thing. That's what they're, that's what they're great at. And those campaign objectives and goals are revenue driven, right? Like these are sales. This isn't just, they're not kind of likes and comments. These are real business objectives. They, many times brands do campaigns. They run campaigns with the objective of conversions, acquisitions. We do that very, very often. And it's, it's, it's very normal. In fact, I would say influencers maybe struggle more with that because a lot of them can't move product. They cannot sell anything because... The reality is their following is a sham, right? They've done some black hat tactics. They've built their following through, you know, by just buying them. And so creators are more open and, and more reliable when it comes to those bottom funnel campaigns. But influencer marketing is one of those channels that you can use top, middle, bottom of funnel, very much like your Facebook ads. You have Facebook ads that you can run or paid social ads that you run at the top of the funnel to either educate people or teach people or build reputation. I mean, there are ads that you use for conversion and, and you optimize against those objectives. And influencer marketing isn't so different. You can use influencer marketing to build a reputation around your brand. You can, you know, if, if you know, we spend all this time when we do branding exercises, building our, our brand archetypes, right? Like, oh, my brand is rebellious. And so we're, you know, we're going to, we're going to make our tone very rebellious. 
But what you're trying to do is make your brand seem, take on human characteristics and human traits. There's a hack for that. And one of the hacks is influencer marketing. If you look at Nespresso and you think of what Nespresso sort of embodies as, 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 as a brand, George Clooney is the personification of Nespresso. If you think of Nespresso, the pod, as a human being, when I think of it, I think of George Clooney. That's a great way to use creators at the top of the funnel to help build your personality, to help build your reputation. And then you can go down the funnel, teach your customers, your potential consumers, how to use your product, the context that it's used in. Influencers are great for that. Creators are great for that. And then at the bottom of the funnel, use them to move product and drive purchases and acquisitions. And so historically it's been like influencer marketing top of funnel that's it <laughs> you know and then more recently it's probably just like no if they're not driving acquisitions it's all wrong and there's there's depending on what your objectives are and depending on what you're trying to do you can execute programs with creators to to hit those objectives i've never thought of that as we hear about a branding exercise to try and personify your brand why not actually hire real people to represent your brand. Maybe your CEO is not that cool, shouldn't be the face of the brand, but yeah. in certain cases, maybe they are the kind of... Both ways too, because if you, you know, if, if you, that's why you need to work with creators. And that's why we take the effort to tease out an influencer and a creator, because if you partner with the wrong person, the same way it can, it can benefit you by bringing your brand to life. It can also hurt you because that creator may just do the wrong thing. Like their attributes and their traits and their characteristics ultimately will be applied to your brand. So if they're bubbly and happy and kind, people will now see your brand as bubbly and happy and kind. But if you choose the wrong creator or the wrong influencer, it could also damage your reputation. So that's why careful vetting is, is really important. Hmm. An exercise that the brand needs to do from the, from the brand side then is really understand who, what kind of audience they're needing to attract. Like who is your customer hmm. and, and what are they about? It's not simple enough to say like, oh, I'm selling to, to, <laughs> to women or I'm selling to men or I'm selling to like, it needs, you need to, we, we know that you need to know exactly who they are, but let's talk a little bit about the difference between a, the audience and the actual creator themselves. Cause hmm. like you mentioned this, I, that idea of personifying the brand, but in a lot of cases, sometimes the creator might not attract an audience that is the same as who they are. Can you talk on that? Yeah. This is why I think any influencer marketing program or campaign or, or strategy needs to begin with, okay, what are, what are the objectives and what are the goals for this program? And sorry, if you're listening to this and you're hearing my kids in the back, they are home, they are doing virtual school. It starts with your, your objective and your goal because there, there, there may be instances where if, if you're not looking to build your reputation or personify your brand, you, you, you know, there might be cases where it's more important that the audience exactly overlaps with your target audience. And you may think you want to partner with a creator because you think they're the perfect fit. But when you go look at the underlying data, <clears throat> they're actually not hitting your target market at all. But it's important to see to, to look at both all the time. And, we, and the best case scenario is a, a creator who represents and embodies sort of the traits and attributes of your brand, but also whose audience overlaps with your target audience. That's the ideal. And that's what sort of we strive for every time. And where does that data come from? Is that in their Instagram, Facebook analytics? For sure. Yeah, you pull that out. You draw that out for sure. Okay. So like a hashtag paid, it's built into our product, but I'm sure there's other products who are able to do that as well. Gotcha. 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 I'd love to hear like any opportunities that you're seeing in the creator economy, trends that are kind of emerging or, or partnerships 
unique models that people are testing out. Maybe you could speak to that from maybe from the creator side first, like ways that creators can get engagement and can find new partnerships. And then from the brand as well, like how they can seek out those partnerships. On the creator side, I say it's, you're starting to see, this is not new again, but you're starting to see creators launch their own brands and their own products. They've built an audience and they're monetizing through brand partnerships, but there's this whole other revenue stream, which is actually just build a product and sell it. And you have, you've built people who've built an empire like Issa Rae. She's got an empire. She's a content creator. She's an actress. She's a director. She's got a record label. She's invested in a coffee shop, Hilltop Coffee. She's on Patreon. She's on TV. She's everywhere. That's probably like the epitome or the pinnacle, maybe, I I, I might say. But there's like Scotty Sire, who's built a a CBD oil brand. There's Addison Rae, who's co-founded Item uh, Beauty. There's Jillian Harris, you know, an ex-bachelorette who's launched a subscription box. And and Danielle Bernstein has, has made a SaaS tool for influencers. So she's actually built a SaaS platform for influencers. And so there's this movement for creators. They, they have an audience and they move towards developing their own product and this whole new revenue uh, stream for them. So, I mean, that's not new, but it's I, I think it's just going to keep picking up and becoming, I think it's going to be more common. Mm-hmm. Just kind of turning their turning their, their influence, which could be temporary and turning it into equity in something, which is much more concrete than maybe an audience could ever be. You got it. And there's tools now that are facilitating that vision and that dream for them. There's sites like Kala, you know, where you can go on and develop your own product very, very easily without having an understanding of offshore manufacturing and 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 3D design or CAD design. You can sort of develop your own product very easily. And so it is becoming more, the, the barrier to entry to developing a product and launching it is becoming easier and easier, which is sort of facilitating this trend. That's very interesting. Do any come to mind on the brand side, brands that are using creators in, in unique ways that you think are going to gain more speed? The brands who come to us, they're doing something that's really smart and they bring two teams to the table. They bring their growth teams or their their performance teams, and they bring their brand or social teams to the, to the conversation. And what happens is there's, they're working together to split the influencer marketing budget. And so here's how it benefits both teams is that if you're paying, suppose, I don't know, let's say $15,000 for a campaign um, and you're getting, I don't know, like 30 assets or something. I'm just making something up, but 30 assets. Those assets, you can reuse and repurpose those now on your website. You can repurpose them on your own brand paid social. You can repurpose them for print. You can do whatever you want with those assets. And so the the, the brand team and the social team, they're coming and they're taking those assets. And instead of spending, you know, where are they going to get those assets? So the total spend is 15,000. They're splitting that budget in half. So they're using influencer marketing for distribution. That's why the performance team and the growth teams are there. And they're using the other half and they're applying that to their content budget. And they're getting, you know, these high quality assets for $7,500, which is much cheaper than they would pay with an agency or even with an in-house marketer. Some people don't have that, uh, don't have an in-house creative team. And so they're getting, they're using creators as a new creative agency. The creators are their creative agency of record right now. And so it's very exciting for us, you know, when, you know, hashtag paid is the agency of record for a brand. And so we hope that that trend continues and we think it will because creators are very nimble and agile and they can turn around content very, very quickly. And again, like I said earlier, they have proven results. They've created the content that's already proven to build an audience. 
And so if it works for them, it's probably going to work for the brand as well. So they got their ear to the ground. They know what's going on. They know what's going to sort of mobilize an audience, move an audience to action. And so really smart brands bringing both teams to the table. They're using creators, not just for distribution, which is sort of how people think of um, influencer marketing, but they're also using as sort of like this, this content generating machine as a creative agency. That's, that's a very cool idea of, have, of, of outsourcing your creative to people who are really creative. That's their whole shtick. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like a two-in-one. I never thought of it that way either. Like the distribution, like you're, you're getting more reach plus the creative. Like that's, okay. that's a win-win for both sides completely. Okay. Absolutely. And then when you look at your content costs, you've got content for cheaper and your distribution. So your return on your, your ad spend and your return on investment, all of a sudden now it looks... It, it looks much more appealing. So you dr- drove your content costs down and you drove your acquisition costs down as well. We've danced around the idea of brand uh, a little bit here. And in, in preparation for this conversation, I reached out to one of your colleagues to see if there are any topics that get you particularly fired up. I won't tell you who it is until you, after you answer the question. But they've said that here's a, a, a concept that the two of you have spoken on before. And so he, they said, when brand marketing is really good, Mm-hmm. the brand is strong, it actually lifts up the whole company and it increases all the business metrics. It's kind of that concept of uh, high water helps all boats float. Yeah. But investing in brand is also not always measurable. Like you said, return on ad spend and the, the actual cost of acquisition and all that stuff. But having a strong brand makes all the business metrics increase. I love this topic. You're right. <laughs> you did well in, in encouraging you to talk about this. But let me let me start with, with this, and I'll try not to be too long-winded here, but a brand, David Kincaid has this definition of a brand, which I've adopted and I use it all the time, but your brand is as good as your ability to consistently deliver on a promise. And so if you consistently promise to do something, that needs to be met in every interaction I have with your brand, whether it's with your website, whether it's whether it's at an event, at a booth, whether it's you know guerrilla marketing with your people that you hired, whether it's with your customer service team, your sales team, it doesn't really matter. Every touch point you need to fulfill on your promise to me. And so I think one of the sort of the all-star examples is of course Disney. You go there and you spend a lot of money. It is not cheap, but every interaction is magical. And, and that's what, why people rave about Disney. They keep their promise of a magical experience throughout your whole stay, no matter who you talk to. And so that's what a brand is. And when you can execute that really well across your teams and your promises are consistently kept as, as a brand, it, it makes the barrier to exit very high. It, meaning there's I, I, I trusted you. You kept your promise all the time. Now I have this, I've added this layer. When I want to leave your brand or stop using your product, you've made it emotionally difficult because you've you've treated me so well. You've consistently kept your promise that now it's emotionally costly for me. It's emotionally expensive for me to leave your brand and your product. And so when you do that, you, for example, here's the, I mean, obviously I'm talking about retention right now, how brand impacts retention, but if you have a strong brand consistently meeting your promises, then you increase your retention because there's a, you've just added an emotional element to the cost of exit. It's going to cost me more emotionally to leave or to stop using your product. And so having a good brand does that. 
And it's my firm belief. I know it's not unique to me, but if you can keep your retention high, that's how you achieve hockey stick growth by keeping the customers you have. And again, that's not new or unique to me, but that's just one example of how brand sort of lifts another team other than the marketing team. Because I think I think people think of marketing as sort of like the the you know sort of they're they're the gatekeepers of brand and brand is up to them and they execute on it. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. It's something I, I fundamentally disagree with how you treat your vendors and how you pay your vendors is a very important part of your brand. Um, if you can manage your inventory and manage your payment terms with your vendors, it could drastically impact whether or not your brand is in business in three months or four months. And so how you treat your vendors is a part of your brand, how you treat your contractors and your freelancers, that's a part of your brand. So anyways, I'll stop here. I've gone on very, very long, but my, whoever that was, was very, very correct. I, I get very passionate. We're talking about brand. <laughs> And it is true. Your brand, I think, helps every metric at the business, not just not just your marketing stuff. Any guess on who submitted that question? Yeah, it's got to be Phil because him and I talk about this all the time. Yeah, he's not <laughs> a marketer, right. but he is a marketer. He's, he's a very, very smart guy. Um, yeah, that's marketer. Phil Jacobson, who's also at Hashtag Paid. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. We talk about all the time, like every week. All right, Roger, I got one more question for you and then I'll let you, let you get out of here. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of exclusivity that a brand can have with a creator. Uh, in a lot of cases, we think of a creator as being kind of a mascot, a temporary mascot, maybe. They kind of represent the company for a little bit and then they can move on. But there's that tension between the brand only wanting that creator to ever hold... Let's Let's use water bottles as an example. Like People use water bottles every day. So if you're the official water bottle of that creator and there's a picture of them on Instagram holding another water bottle, does that just throw out all the work you've done together as a brand or, or can they live together? Yeah. And I love this question. I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions of influencer marketing. And that is that that, that brand should strive for exclusivity with their creators. And I... I you know, I challenge that idea and that philosophy. If you look around, so if you're listening to this, or even you, Stuart, if you look around wherever you are, you'll probably see multiple brands in the same category of products. That is natural for us as human beings. I have one soap in, in my bathroom downstairs. I have another soap upstairs in, 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 my, in my bedroom. I have a brand of t-shirt on right now, and I have multiple in my closet. It is very natural for us as human beings to use different things, to try different things, to own different things within the same category. Now, to it would be very unnatural. In fact, I think people are surprised even, right? We're surprised that Steve Jobs used a black turtleneck all the time, right? That's something that people mention about Steve Jobs. If someone who didn't know Steve Jobs were to ask you about him, you might bring up that he wore a black turtleneck all the time because only using one product is, is very uncommon, and so to ask a creator now, hey, I only want you to use one product is unnatural and inauthentic. And the irony of all of that is it actually hurts the authenticity of the content that's eventually going to be pumped out. You asked, you asked about water bottles. I literally have different brands of water bottles and I have different use cases for each one. I have one for my protein shake and I have another one for when I'm cycling and, or, and another one for when I'm running that you know, wraps around your waist. And so it is very possible, even in the water bottle category, to own different brands of water bottles. And so I, I can think of very few products that require exclusivity. Maybe they're sort of one or twice in a lifetime purchases. I can understand that. You're not going to buy seven vehicles in, you know, in over six months, right? Like I, I, I get that. And so I, I think that might be one exception, for example. But even then, 
there's two different brands of cars sitting in my driveway. And so I would challenge the idea and I would challenge marketers to see beyond the exclusivity component of a partnership. Well put. I like that a lot. Tastes change as well as the audience grows and shrinks and and evolves too. Like they're not going to call out a creator that they, they had a different water bottle in their last video. I mean, they might, but, but then the creator can say exactly your story. Oh, this is my, this is my desk water bottle. It's my favorite because it doesn't fall over and I won't knock it on my laptop, which is just adding to your brand story of like, where does this play in your life? It's not just a water bottle. It actually is my desk water bottle. And that applies to tons of people who work at desks right now. Totally. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Roger. This has been really insightful. I've learned a ton. And you host a podcast too, right? You've got the D2C Growth Show, which is run by Hashtag Paid. You got it. Yeah. I, I do a couple episodes. AJ on our team does a couple other episodes. He's got a really great one with Candid. So so check that out with the founder of Candid. DDC Growth Show. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Stuart.